this fall as we look at the Hebrew and gospel text each Sunday. I'll preach one, Amy will preach the other. We're trying to make some connections. What had Jesus learned that he was passing on in his own teaching? We're calling the series, Jesus Taught What Jesus Learned, because you can be clear that Jesus was a product of his education. Everything Jesus taught came out of his religious background. Now, please don't live with some naive notion that Jesus didn't have to learn, that he was born with perfect knowledge of all things, just fully formed in his eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus brain, to quote the slightly irreverent Ricky Bobby just a little bit. The Gospel of Luke says Jesus grew in wisdom. Jesus learned And what Jesus learned from the rabbis in Hebrew school, that was their version of Sunday school, formed Jesus' understanding of himself and his world and his understanding of God. It cannot be otherwise. Our formal and informal education is just that critical to our young and developing minds. The poem that you have probably seen by Dorothy Law Nolte says it well. If a child learns or lives with criticism, she learns to condemn. If a child lives with hostility, he learns to fight. If a child lives with ridicule, she learns to be shy. If a child lives with shame, he learns to feel guilty. On and on it goes. Children who live with acceptance and friendship learn to find love in the world. What we learn forms us for life. What we learn in our early years forms us for a whole lifetime. The proverb says, train children in the right way and they will not stray. So I will remind you again, I've done this many times and I will keep reminding you of the lesson that Amy and I learned from the teacher who taught both of our boys in the fourth grade. In every class, every year, she says she could pick out the church kids in her class, no doubt. She said the church kids were just better adjusted, better behaved. They engaged their peers better and with their teachers. Familiarity with more formal settings, singing in church choirs, opportunities to interact in public right here, made them confident and poised, prepared to interact with the world. Now that teacher did not say her students could recite the Ten Commandments or quote the Roman road to salvation. She said religious education had prepared them for life. They had a foundation deeper than just religious indoctrination that framed how they saw themselves, how they responded to circumstances, how they related to the world. Jesus was a church kid. You remember that day his parents found him in the temple, confidently interacting with his elders, learning and teaching with a maturity that exceeded his years. Jesus had spent a lot of time in church. And then as an itinerant prophet, his interactions with the common folk, as well as with the scribes and Pharisees, all came out of a foundation based in his religious tradition. Jesus quoted a lot of scripture. Not in a Bible-thumping way, but with authority born of integrity. He pushed against the status quo of culture. He spoke truth to power. He continued the prophetic challenge to conventional religious wisdom because Jesus was a church kid. 
And at the heart of his formation were the stories of the Hebrew Bible, the stories that had prepared him. The essential story, the indispensable story at the heart of all the stories of the Jewish people is the story of the Exodus. Now promise me, if you do not know this whole story, that you will go home today and read the whole thing from the book of Exodus. If you're riding home with someone, they can Google it and read it to you on your way home. You need to know the whole story. Let all the drama of Cecil B. DeMille just wash over you as you hear all of it. Moses, the baby left in the Nile River, rescued by the Pharaoh's daughter and raised in royalty, who flees uh, from Egypt after killing the Egyptian taskmaster, who has just killed one of Moses' fellow Israelites, who is confronted then in the wilderness by God in a burning bush, who returns then to confront the Pharaoh, let my people go. And then Yahweh sends ten plagues on the Egyptians, the last being the angel of death, who kills all the firstborn sons, including the son of the Pharaoh who finally, in fear and grief, relents and frees the Hebrew children from their bondage. You need to know the whole story. Not long after 600,000 slaves depart for the promised land, however, the Pharaoh realizes what the loss of all that free labor is going to mean to his building projects, so he sends his army after the people. They catch up to the Israelites on the shore of the sea where with their backs to the wall, God instructs Moses to lift his hand. The water parts and the Israelites cross on dry land. But as the Egyptians follow, God throws the army into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels, which is where we pick up the story today in our lesson. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians. So Moses stretched out his hand, and the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the entire army of Pharaoh. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground. The waters forming a wall from them, for them on their right and on their left. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord had done, so the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in Moses. You have heard the ancient story. It is a powerful story. And like much of the Bible, it is a story we must read carefully. The events are gory, and disturbing on many levels. Who is this God who picks and chooses, empowering his favorites over their enemies, using violence, killing with brutal force? Not one Egyptian remained. Who is this God? And how might such a tale of violence be misused in the hands of paranoid and insecure human beings who seem always looking for ways to justify our own vengeance. 
we ought to ask all the difficult questions of this text. But as I keep telling you, there is more than one way to read the Bible. One reading has been used for centuries and continues to be used, sadly, to justify violence, to rationalize our own wars, to brutalize our enemies in the name of God. But a better way of reading will require Christians to see all Scripture through the life of Jesus, who renounces all violence, who loves his enemies, who lives with a different set of values altogether. This reading will, will forsake all of the abuses of the literal words and will see instead a grand mythic story of the perpetual battle between God and empire. Read carefully and you will see that the battle is not really between Moses and Pharaoh. Yahweh is the protagonist. It is God against empire. The myths and narratives of power, the values of all worldly kingdoms against the kingdom or the kingdom of God. Even read carefully, the story presents a challenge because even though the psalmist had taught the ancient Israelites that God's ways are not our ways, the Israelites seemed to delight in picturing Yahweh using all the ways of empire, deception and power and brutal violence to win the battle. So at the beginning... There's one thing we need to understand clearly and make sure that we profess. That if we ever stoop to using the tools of empire to try to defeat the empire, if we ever acquiesce to the values and myths and narratives of earthly powers and parties, states and sovereignties, you can be sure that we will have won nothing. God's ways are not our ways. People of faith are supposed to have a different set of values altogether. Paul Harvey, some of you know his name, gained his radio fame by telling amazing tales of heroism and surprise and ending those stories with his signature line, and now you know the rest of the story. It will take another revelation for Christians to understand this story. That revelation, the rest of the story, comes in the life of Jesus who contends with the empire but refuses to use the tools of empire. Jesus defeats the empire in the only way it can be defeated and that is by changing the rules altogether. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. This story, God's epic defeat of empire, the story of liberation from bondage, of emancipation from oppression, the courage and the freedom that came to the Jewish people is at the heart of the story Jesus learned as a child. The story shaped his whole life and ministry. You can see it in his confrontation with the powers of ancient Judaism and the Roman Empire. And if you listen carefully, 
You can hear him reinterpret this essential story with his own life. You can hear the rest of the story as he consistently confronts the religious leaders of his day for appropriating the values of empire into their understanding of religion. With this story deeply ingrained from his formative years, Jesus learned of the necessity of confronting the powers that be. He learned that faith is an essential challenge to empire. And he learned to trust with confidence that God is always with us, overcoming the greatest challenges with us, indeed overcoming for us. A good story has the power to teach those kinds of lessons. So with this story deeply ingrained, Jesus was equipped to offer us a way to overcome anything. Anything. Even if it kills us. And now you know the rest of the story. May it be so. Russ has presented us with an interesting challenge in this sermon series of how does the Hebrew text speak to the New Testament text and vice versa. And last week we listened in and enjoyed uh, the way that uh, J.D. and Dan put those things together. And Dan's part, well, really we could just take J.D.'s children's time and Dan's sermon from last week and call it a day because they've pretty much said it all. So I've tried to figure out a little different turn on this and how to get it to talk to that story that we just heard about how the children of Israel crossed over to the other side while the destruction of the Egyptian army came. So hopefully this will come together. There's a a parable that Jesus tells right after the text that I'm just going to read two verses from Matthew's gospel. And then there's this long um, story that Jesus tells that is enlightening and troubling and difficult. I don't have time to deal with it, so read it on your own and come to your own conclusions, okay? I'm just going to take two verses from Matthew's gospel. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, If another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. And if you're reading in your Bible, there should be a little asterisk with a footnote that says perhaps a better translation might be 70 times 7. You've heard the ancient story. I keep picturing the children of Israel having crossed over on dry land to the other side of the Red Sea, knowing that their enemy was not right behind them anymore, but rather they were now long gone. I keep trying to imagine what it would look, what it would be like to look back and know that the Pharaoh and his mighty band of soldiers could no longer get to them, oppress them, use and abuse them. What must it have felt like to feel like that horrible time is over? 
I keep wondering if freedom and liberty and a whole new life that awaited them in a promised land, a promise of milk and honey that flowed freely, would have been enough for them to move past their pain and past their suffering and past their oppression. I have said so many times, probably more often to myself than to others, but I've said it so many times, we do not get over things that are difficult. The goal is to get through them. Not over them, but through them. And the children of Israel got through to the other side, but I wonder what they did with all of their feelings and all of their trauma. In a modern-day telling, perhaps we could look to our own country. White people no longer own black people. And there are many who would say it's past time for black people to get over it. Slavery, that is. How do you possibly get over all that comes with our nation's horrible history of slavery? But then there's another group that speaks about reparations, an attempt to make right the wrongs that were committed because while we got through that terrible blight on our country's history, we are far from over it. What do people do with all those feelings and all of that trauma? I think about 9-11. It rolls around each year as it did this past week, and we see commemorations in the reading of the names, and we realize we got through it. And in the moment, we got through it more united than our country has ever been, but we've gotten over that. It would seem we are more divided than ever, but we got through it. But what does it look like on the other side of through it? Pain is still present. War has been waged. Countless more lives have been lost. What do we do with all of those feelings and all of that trauma? Everything was not all rosy for the children of Israel after they crossed over. Everything is still not all that great for black people after slavery ended. And what about the thousands who still grieve those who died on 9-11 and still live in such fear? We don't get over hard times, we get through them. So all of this made me wonder how Jesus would make the connection between the story found in the Hebrew scriptures today about the courage and strength to cross over to the other side and make their way to that promised land and his teachings about forgiveness. The children of Israel probably spent the rest of their days working in their own hearts for generations to come to try and find some kind of forgiveness for the story that was their life, a story of slavery and oppression and captivity. How do you forgive that? So when asked how many times do we have to forgive, Jesus offers us a staggering reality check. Seven times? That won't even begin to touch it. 
try 77 times, or perhaps that better translation would actually be 70 times 7 times, which, thanks for the math check on this, would be 490 times, which would be more than once a day, if you're just looking at a calendar year, all those sevens, a number that symbolizes completion, wholeness, to be made whole, to be complete, you will need to forgive and 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 then when you think you are at the end of forgiving you will need to forgive more and more and more i think jesus was saying you will have to forgive as often as you have been are being and will be forgiven yourself Now, this rubs us the wrong way because we want math to be involved and we would like for it to be easy math. Please let me carry the one. Easy answers, quick solutions, but it's just not how forgiveness works. Perhaps the worst simple tritism that has ever been said is forgive and forget. You cannot forget. And the way the saying is set up is that you have to have one in order to have the other. So logic would say, well, if you can't forget, then can you ever really forgive? Many years ago, I read that the saying should be, forgive and remember. Because every time you remember, you have the opportunity, the gift, the grace to forgive again. 77 times, 490 times, all the time. And that means we will constantly be crossing over into forgiveness. I can't help but wonder about the children of Israel after they crossed over on dry land. Did they spend the rest of their wilderness years resentful and angry? and harboring ill feelings in their hearts? Or did they dig down deep and find forgiveness? Did they hate their oppressors and stew in their own bitterness? Or did they use mercy as their guide? Did they let hatred harden their hearts, or did grace become amazing among them? Did they spend more time looking back at what had been? Or did they focus forward into the promise that God would indeed be with them through it all? Now the answer to those questions is probably a little bit of yes for all of the options. Were there times of resentment and bitterness and anger and pain Probably so. But could they really have moved on and become all that God meant for them to be if they did not practice forgiveness along the way? They were just humans. You get 
that the story of the children of Israel, the story of the people of God, we read the Bible in order to understand ourselves. They were just people. I read a bunch of quotes this week about what forgiveness is and is not. There was some truth in each one of them. But the one that stuck with me in light of this children of Israel crossing over story was this. Forgiveness is letting go of the hope that the past can be changed. Forgiveness is letting go of the hope that the past can be changed. When we are wounded and hurt and betrayed or belittled and mistreated and abused, it is only natural to harbor ill will. Perhaps that's why Jesus is so adamant about this forgiveness thing. He hammered it home with an obscene declaration, essentially saying there is no end to forgiveness, which will come in handy in a world that is broken and where we will get hurt. And we will get hurt. And we will hurt others. Life in community cannot survive without forgiveness. At our recent intergenerational retreat, we were reminded that practice makes possible, not perfect. So perhaps we ought to start practicing forgiveness. We won't always get it right. But perhaps we ought to start practicing forgiveness in order for forgiveness to even be possible Now, don't confuse forgiveness with condoning. And don't confuse forgiveness with turning a blind eye. Don't confuse forgiveness with disregarding or overlooking egregious infractions. And don't confuse forgiveness with neglect of wrongdoing. But forgiveness is what happens in your own heart while trying to find peace and make peace in a world that is far from peaceful. We will be hurt. How will we cross over into forgiveness? We will be the offender sometimes. How will we cross over into forgiveness? In your own life, look back if you must. But do not linger there, for God has already wiped that slate clean. Remember the Egyptians. In your own life, with all of the woundedness and pain that you carry, face forward as you cross over into forgiveness, trusting that God will be your guide, your comfort, your very present help in any and every trouble. But do not think it will be easy or pleasant or simple. More than likely, it's going to be difficult, unpleasant, and complicated. It will likely keep you up at night and cause you not to be able to feel very much of an appetite. Cross over into forgiveness anyway. It may just be the only road that leads to milk and honey and the promise of good news. May it be so. Amen.